Episode 42 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. Uh, my name is Rebecca Waddington, and I am an officer in the NOAA Corps, and I fly their King Air and G4 aircraft. What is going on, AV Nation, and welcome back to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. My name is Justin, and I am your host. Today, I'm talking with a Hurricane Hunter pilot. I am talking with a NOAA pilot, Rebecca Waddington. Some of the things Rebecca and I talk about are, why did she join NOAA in the first place? We talk about what it's like to become a NOAA pilot, what it's like flying in, around, in front, just all around the hurricane environment. We talk about if hurricane turbulence is worse than a pop-up thunderstorm in Florida turbulence. We talk about how NOAA is more than just flying in hurricanes. We talk about what it's like from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. or from morning to evening, what it's like in the day in the life of a hurricane hunter. So guys, you are not going to want to miss this episode. Before we start, I do want to say thank you to everyone for listening to this podcast as I know you're taking the time out of your day. Please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash pilot. Support us there. Support us in the podcast. We have stickers there. Hopefully soon t-shirts will be on there as well. But for now, we have stickers. So check those out. They're pretty cool. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can check us out there. I think we have about 200 reviews right now. So the next goal is going to be 250. Then it's going to be 300. So please share this episode with everyone you know. Share this podcast with, I know I said this before, share it, share it with your CFI. Share it with your roommate. Share it with people that you don't even know like aviation. That's one of the beautiful things about aviation. Just share it with them and they might get hooked too. They might get the bug. So guys, I cannot wait for this episode. I know you guys will like it. And without further ado, here's Rebecca Waddington. Today's episode is sponsored by Cadence Aviation. Cadence Aviation makes some of the best and affordable headsets out in the game. I was currently testing out the ANR1, and I would highly recommend this for anyone that is just starting their training or that is building their time and doesn't want to go out and spend $1,000 on a Bose headset. They have great quality, they fit well, they don't clamp on your head. I highly recommend checking out Cadence Aviation. That's cadenceaviation.com and the ANR1. Hey, Rebecca, thanks for coming on the Pilot to Pilot podcast. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. No problem. Now, this is one of my cooler episodes, I do have to say. I'm very excited. I'm sure a lot of people that listen to the podcast are excited to hear from an NOAA pilot and just the type of flying you do, how to get into it, and just all that kind of stuff. So I'm excited to talk with you today. Well, thank you. Um, we definitely have a unique way of flying, so <laughs> yeah. happy to get the word out. Yeah, you could say that. That's for sure. So let's go ahead and start with um, why you got into aviation. What was the original appeal? Uh, honestly, my background is in meteorology, and I joined the NOAA Corps, which is an active duty uniform service, um, not to fly aircraft, but to drive ships. And that's what I started off doing. Um, but as I stayed in the NOAA Corps, I discovered that driving ships wasn't enough for me and I needed another challenge. And around that same time, I received an email. It was sent out to every officer in the NOAA Corps saying that they were in need of more pilots. Um, and I honestly looked at that email and thought, that could be fun. <laughs> um, so it kind of fell into it, honestly, but I, I'm very happy. It was a happy accident. Yeah, that's awesome. So tell me a little bit more about the NOAA Corps. Is it like, so you said you joined, is it like the military where, or, or like how, where does it fall in line with a government agency type deal? Sure. It's similar to the military, but we're an unarmed service. Okay. So instead of being under the Department of Defense, we're under the Department of Commerce. Um, we're actually one of the oldest services um, and the smallest. We actually only have 320 officers, no enlisted. 
Um, so what we do is operate the ships and aircraft that are used for scientific research around the nation. That's cool. So boats go down to like Antarctica and do stuff down there, like all over the world, or is it mainly around the country and kind of our territories? It's focused around the U.S. territories, um, but we do go all over. We've had ships that have gone down to Antarctica. We actually have an officer that's stationed at the South Pole. Just one? Um, just one. Just that's got to be there's, so there's lonely. There's many other people <laughs> at the South Pole, but just one NOAA Corps officer. <laughs> many, <laughs> many people at the South Pole. When you say many, you probably mean like eight. Well, <laughs> many's relative. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, we've got officers out in Guam and American Samoa. Um, we take our ships all around the U.S. coast, and we've also sent ships over to Africa. Um, we have had a ship go down to Antarctica in the past. And then our aircraft, while mostly based in the U.S., we've also been elsewhere. Um, our G4 this coming January, February, March, we'll be spending um, a lot of time in Hawaii, Guam, and American Samoa. And we've also spent time in Japan um, lots of time in Alaska and our P3 routinely goes to Ireland during the winter um, to do a winter store. It's called the ocean winds project that they're really um, kind of calibrating satellite data for winter weather over the North Atlantic. So cool. we're known for their hurricane flights, but we actually do a lot more. No way. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, when you hear that, all you think of is just the, the people going to go fly into the middle of a hurricane to give us the weather channel, the latest data from that. <laughs> But that's cool that you guys do. It's a wide range of things that you guys cover. Yeah, we have uh, nine aircraft in total, uh, two P-3s and the G-4, and those are the Hurricane Hunter planes. Um, but we also have a King Air, um, an Aero Commander, and four Twin Otters. Oh, and cool. it's our light aircraft that actually do a lot of the work. Um, they're constantly sent down on the road almost every day, um, doing everything from coastal mapping to marine mammal research. I mean, they fly around at 500 feet over the snowpack, measuring the water equivalent. Um, and that's really important for flood forecasting. So we're everywhere from 500 feet above the ground to 45,000 feet above the ground. Dang, that's crazy. So you said in the intro that you fly the King Air and the G4. What kind of missions? So I know they like to send prop planes usually into the hurricanes for hail and for, I don't know, the whole reason. But maybe you can explain a little bit about what you do or why they send certain planes into certain areas and kind of just the the background of everything that goes on. Sure. Um, I'll start with the King Air. That was the first aircraft I flew for NOAA. Um, Started flying that back in 2010 and still fly it now. Uh, That plane is our remote sensing platform. So it is primarily used for coastal mapping. Um, In fact, right now it is out in South Carolina doing damage assessment um, of Hurricane Florence. Gotcha. So throughout the year when there are no hurricanes, um, (laughs) it's out mapping the coastline at different tide stages. And that data gets translated to nautical charts for the safety of shipping. Um, And then when there are hurricanes or even tornadoes, floods, earthquakes, um, oil spills will respond with that aircraft um, to take imagery and really find out where all the damage is and get that imagery to the local and federal emergency managers so that they know where they need to stage assets. That's cool. Uh, so it's a really cool mission. And then uh, just this past year, I transitioned over to the Gulfstream 4, um, and that's our high-altitude research jet. So it is in the air right now. One of the rare times I'm not on it. Uh, (laughs) And they're doing uh, research into um, the Saharan air layer, which plays a really important role in whether or not hurricanes um, 
develop. Oh, wow. So there was a SAL, is what we call it, um, a SAL outbreak um, over the Caribbean right now. You can see it on satellite, all the dust in the air. So they're out flying today, dropping uh, what we call drop zones, their weather instrumentations, the same ones that we use in the hurricanes, uh-huh. um, to essentially measure a vertical profile of the storm. Um, so the G4 does research like that with the dust layer. Um, we do the high altitude research with hurricanes. So we are flying, um, above and around and in front of the storms. Um, and all the data that we're collecting is really important when it comes to the track forecast because we're sampling the environment that the storm's moving into. So we want to see how that environment is going to affect the movement of it. Is it going to go left and, you know, get into the Gulf or is it going to go right and not hit any part of the U.S.? Um, unfortunately, in this case with Florence, um, it showed it's going right there towards Carolinas. Yeah, um, which which is not good. I have uh, my family no. li- lived on uh, where they have a beach house on Oak Island, which is just south of Wilmington. So it, do they still have the beach house? They on do. Surprisingly good. enough, Matthew last year, the way it hit and the way it hit the state, it kind of like sticks out. It's like right at the bottom by Wilmington. So the way the storm hit, it wasn't nearly as bad as what Matthew was. So it was good. Good. Good for them, at least. Everyone else, Wilmington, yeah. kind of uh, not the best. <laughs> yeah, and unfortunately, Florence uh, kind of acted like Hurricane Harvey from last year, where it made landfall and then just stalled out and dumped a ton of rain. Yeah. Um, and I think people underestimate how uh, how much of an impact water has in hurricanes. You know, everyone's so focused on the wind speed, and um, oftentimes, like in the case of Florence, it's not the wind that's... Uh, the danger in this one it was the water definitely no that's 100 percent true i mean even the like you said it stalled out and then the winds whether it was tropical storm force winds or category one force winds for for a day or a day and a half that can do a lot of damage certainly yeah so Um, you do a lot of kind of going out and forecasting in the g4 so how early did you guys know that it was going to be a big threat for the carolinas or the east coast because i know hurricanes change really fast and when did it start becoming real for you guys like hey this is actually going to be an issue well we started flying um into florence last saturday um So about a week in advance, and all of our tasking actually comes from the National Hurricane Center and the Hurricane Research Division. Mm -hmm. Um, So we'll be looking at the models, you know, weeks in advance, knowing limitations of models. The further out you're looking, the less accurate they are. Right. Um, But we're looking at them on a daily basis to say, hey, what what could be an impact and what may not? Um, And then the Hurricane Center will task us. And we usually get tasked um, when they need to figure out which model's right. Uh, so if there's a big split in the models, they'll send us out there because then our data can replace some of the assumptions that are going into the models and really kind of bring them more into a consensus. Right, because your uh, data is more like real-time data of what's actually going on in the system and what's around the system. So it has a much better idea of what it is doing or what it could be doing, right? Exactly. And we we go out at you know the same time every flight uh, or same couple of times because our takeoff time and the which then translates into the time that we're actually collecting the data is all designed so that that data gets into a certain model run, which are the models are always run at, you know, certain synoptic times mm-hmm. so that, like I said, we're basically replacing assumptions with real information, gotcha. um, which is just making them more accurate for the additional runs. And the hurricane center will task us once they think that a storm is going to be a threat to the U S or U S territory. Gotcha. What's a, uh, so you said you have takeoff times. What are the slots that you guys usually take off in? Uh, we take off at 1730 Zulu time, uh, is, 
is our daily flights, and that's when I was on, and then again, 12 hours later. Okay, gotcha. And, um, then... and sometimes we do one flight a day, sometimes we do um, 24-hour operations. Yeah, that's um, what, what we're doing on Florence, and a lot of that is dependent on how close it is to the U.S. Gotcha. So some storms we might start off with just uh, daily flights of seventeen thirty takeoffs, and then it will translate into twenty four hour ops as it gets closer. That makes sense because obviously the farther away it is, the harder it is to going to get that uh, G four or whatever you guys are sending out there every single hour on the hour. So definitely. Yeah, and the G four it does its job really well because it's fast. Yeah. Uh, Earlier this season, we went out to Hawaii three separate times um, to study the storms out there, uh, starting with Hector, and then it was Hurricane Lane, and then Hurricane Norman, um, all three storms that posed a threat to the island. And we were one of the few planes that could do that because we could get out there in a day um, and start flying. So it was it was a really easy task to say, hey, send the G4 out there. We need that information. Definitely. So do you have a basin? Because obviously you got the Pacific Ocean, you have the Atlantic Ocean, you have the Gulf of Mexico, you have kind of all the territories, even like Guam out there. Where does the the G4 usually live? How do you get there? What is the the lifestyle of you guys? Its home is Lakeland, Florida. Okay. Uh, We just moved here a year ago. We used to be at McDill Air Force Base, uh, but now we have a home of our own. Um, So that's where all the pilots are based out of. And all the planes live here. And, of course, you know, when the planes are out um, on projects, sometimes we'll be on temporary duty somewhere else. Gotcha. And then so say um, you're tasked to go fly in Hawaii. Do you guys fly to the West Coast and then get like a specific rest? Like are you governed by similar rest rules at other airlines or 135 operations or the FAA? Or can you guys kind of do what you want? Uh, we are considered public aircraft, but we abide by the FAA rules. Yeah. So any rules that differ, ours are actually a little more stringent. Um, so we do have a crew rest period. And for uh, multi-piloted aircraft um, with an autopilot, our our rest is 16 hours. Well, not our rest, but our crew duty is 16 hours per day. Okay. Um, and that's not flight time. That's crew duty. So right. from the time you, you wake up and start preparing for your first flight to the time you shut down after your second one um that's 16 hours now with the g4 our typical flight times are about eight hours so it's only one flight per day because there's no way with a crew duty you'd get multiple flights right. per pilot um the plane will fly multiple times but we'll just add <laughs> crews to it yeah definitely so let's say all right so here we go hurricane florence is coming in it's close enough where you guys are flying 24 hours all the time constantly getting information start from hour one and go through till hour 16 essentially of what you're doing throughout the day like what the planning is like what the flying is like what the conditions are like all that kind of stuff yes yeah, so we always report um to the aircraft or to the airport an hour and a half prior to takeoff time where we have a full crew briefing. Um, but before that, the pilots, sorry, I'm, I'm at an airport, so you might hear airplane noises behind oh, no, me. You're fine. Um, so the pilots and the maintainers, the mechanics will show up prior to that time to start our pre-flight duties. So the pilot that's flying left seat that day will go out and do the safety pre-flight of the aircraft. Um, the mechanic will also be out there making sure that it's fueled and serviced, and they're also doing a safety pre-flight. Um, the other pilot, the right seat pilot, will be kind of doing all the paperwork. So we're filing the flight plan. We Well, before we even file the flight plan, we have certain drop points where we're dropping the instrumentation, and we'll run those 
points and our our predicted flight plan through a long-range planning system. Um, it's used by the military, and we have access to it, and it's a really great tool to show you um, how much fuel reserve you'll have um, if you do that planned route. Uh, from there, it depends. Sometimes it comes back and says, you don't have enough fuel for this, in which case uh, we go back and forth with the National Hurricane Center and say, okay, what points can we drop? Um, you know, we're not going to be able to hit all of these waypoints. Um, other times it says, Hey, you're looking good. You're going to have 5,000 pounds when you land. And that's, that's what we're looking for. Um, so we run the long range planning system. We're checking the weather. We're checking the NOTAMs, just like any pilot does for any of their flights. Um, except no one on has we... NOTAMs in the hurricane. <laughs> <laughs> well, we do. We yeah. issue, an, we issue our own NOTAM for the hurricane since we're dropping stuff into it. We don't yeah. want anybody flying beneath us. Right. Uh, and, of course, we're checking the weather, and we acknowledge the SIGMED out there, and we're like, yep, we're going to fly into that. But <laughs> yeah. we tell everybody else not to, but that one that one, we're going to accept the risk. <laughs> um, and then we file the flight plan. Um, and a lot of times we'll get in contact with the different centers. Um, on the East Coast, we're, we're talking with Miami Center, Jacksonville, and New York. Um, and just kind of giving them a heads up what we're doing, especially in this case with Florence. Um, as it got closer to land, we were right over those tracks that go from New York down to Florida. Granted, a lot of people might not be taking those routes because there was a storm over it. Uh, <laughs> we also wanted to make sure that we're talking to New York Center and let them know our plan ahead of time, answering any questions that they might have about what we're doing. Um, once all of that is set, like I said, we meet with our entire team uh, for the pre-flight crew briefing. Um, that's led by our flight director, who's also a meteorologist, and they go over things. Um, such as specific hazards in the storm, uh, where our flight plans are, how many instruments we're planning on dropping. Um, if there's any turbulence in the area, which of course there's always hmm, turbulence in yeah. the hurricane. I, I wonder <laughs> if there's any turbulence. <laughs> but kind of what to expect. And and like I said, our flight plans take us around the storm and also way out in front of it. So we're looking at the weather um, that's quite distance from the storm. Uh, one of our flight plans around Florence actually took us up by Long Island. Mm -hmm. Um, so we're looking at the weather up there too, which is not associated with the storm at all. Uh, after the flight plan or the crew briefing rather, um, we'll all kind of go get our food in the refrigerator. Cause like I said, it's an eight plus hour flight. So we want to make sure we have enough sustenance <laughs> and, uh, they the won't be out the plane. Yeah. yeah. The, the pilots will head out to the plane first to get the APU up and running. And then the crew will kind of trickle in. Um, we always give them a time a door closing time so that we can ensure that we make that 1730 takeoff time. Do you, would you leave someone behind? Is there like anyone that's important enough to make sure you have on the plane or can you leave them? Everyone's pretty important. We'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll give them some hell if they show up late. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we also yeah. have everyone's cell phone numbers. So, <laughs> so they will be there. <laughs> and like they you said, will be there. you have a crew briefing, so they're all in the general area already anyways, so they shouldn't be late, but that'd be funny. Yes, they're all around, so yeah. <laughs> there's no stragglers. And everyone on our crew knows how important the mission is, yeah. too. So we haven't had an had a situation where we've needed to go and grab somebody yet. If anyone's uh, late, you can call Jim Cantori, and they can call him out on the weather channel and be like, we don't have an update because <laughs> of Rebecca. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. Um, we do have media that flies on board with us sometimes. Yeah. Um, and you know, we're not doing it for the fame by any means. Um, but we like having media on board because it's a way to get our information out and maybe have people pay more attention right. to the storm that is coming their way. Um, so sometimes it's, 
you know, hustling the media out to the plane. Well, <laughs> it's yeah. time to get on board. I know you want to take pictures, but let's get on yeah, the plane now. Let's go. Oh. <laughs> Put the GoPro down for a second. Let's go. There's there's more pictures to be seen in flight. Don't yeah. worry. Um, <laughs> yeah, make sure you have your sick bags. And once we take off, you know, our, our, initial, our initial hour in flight, um, half hour to an hour, we're talking just like any other aircraft to the different approach controllers and trying to climb up. And, and sometimes we get a little antsy because we want to get up to 45,000 feet as fast as possible. For fuel um, reasons or for any other reasons? For fuel reason? reasons yeah. and also for the data collection. You know, the higher we get, the more data we get. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if we can't get up to 45,000 feet by our first uh, drop point, we'll still drop our instrumentation, but you might be missing uh, 1,000 to 3,000 feet of data. Um, so we understand there's traffic and airspace and, and whatnot, but we're always trying to just chime in. We're the <laughs> annoying people on the radio, like, hey, Miami Center, can we? Request higher. Request yeah. higher. Do you have um, kind of priority in that, would you say? Do they work with you guys pretty well? I don't know if there's priority, but they certainly work with us, yeah. uh, especially down here in Miami. They're so used to storms. Um, right. I mean, it affects them every year. Uh, they know what we're doing. Um, they know that the data is important, so they work with us to get up, up there as fast as possible. And then once we're up there, you kind of just get on a roll. I mean, uh, no pun intended, but you, you get on autopilot and you just go in here. You're sending out the data. So the guys in the back, our crew in the back, is really focused on the data. And once the drop sound is released, it radios back the information. So we're quality checking it in mm-hmm. real time. Um, so while they're focused on that, us up in the front are looking at uh, weather avoidance. I know it sounds funny. We're purposely flying through a hurricane, but then we're avoiding weather. <laughs> yeah. But it's still a jet. And up at 45,000 feet, there's not a whole lot of air up there. No. Um, so... If we can avoid getting bounced around, we will. So generally up that high, you're above most of the convection, but there will be some overshooting tops and, um, we'll look to avoid those. There's no, there's no reason to fly right into that and put ourselves in danger. Um, so (laughs) we actually work on doing that. We've got a constant eye on the radar as do our meteorologists on board. Uh, we actually have the ability to give them one of the sweeps of the nose radar so that they can look at different angles and okay. kind of help us out using their meteorological background. Um, and then the other thing we're looking at is traffic. Um, as I mentioned, some of our flight lines and some of our drop points are not right at the storm. So sometimes we do have traffic around them. We don't want to be dropping stuff on top of the traffic. No, that would be so bad. That'd leave a pretty big have, hole in an airplane, I'm guessing. Yeah, I don't think they would like that very no. much. I mean, the instruments aren't, aren't very big, but you don't want to get hit by anything when you're no. on the plane. Yeah. Um, so we're constantly looking at our TCAS and, and making radio calls out on guard frequency, letting, letting anybody in the area know what we're doing. Um, and then there are times where we have to radio back to our flight director and ask them to delay one of the drops or drop early just to avoid any traffic that might be yeah. in the area. Now you said that you guys put the autopilot on. Do you have all the coordinates plugged into like a Garmin system? Is it a special <laughs> government system? Like what kind of, what, what do you, how's autopilot? No, it, is, it is standard Honeywell okay. uh, that is used on every other Gulfstream port. And we plug those waypoints, those Latin logs in by hand. Oh my gosh. Don't mess that up. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> And we check and we recheck. Yeah. And uh, what's nice is we usually get our waypoints a day ahead of time. So when we're out flying one storm, um, you know, during some of the lulls, we could be putting them in for the next crew to go out on their flight yeah. so that they're not trying to do that right before their flight. 
So I know that you um, guys try to fly above the hurricane and stay out of turbulence. So what is what's a ride like like up that high? What's it? What's like? Is it a thrill? Is it scary? Is it like what am I doing? Why did I decide to do this? Like type deal. Like <laughs> what goes through your mind when you're doing these missions? Uh, well, like I said, I'm a weather geek by heart, so I love seeing it. Um, but as far as the turbulence is concerned, it's in the jet, it's very similar to what you'd feel in a commercial jet. Yeah. Um, there are times where we'd hit pockets where we get bounced around a little bit more. Um, and unlike when you're on an airline flight and they try to get you out of that light shop or maybe a little more than light, <laughs> we, we stay in it, okay. um, until, until it gets too much and what point we're turned. And like I said, we're constantly looking at the radar and trying to see, uh, where there will be areas that are particularly bad and we'll avoid those. What's the, uh, what's the worst ride you've had? What storm? Uh, Florence, actually, we had a couple pockets one of the days, um, where, you know, it's, like I said, we're flying around on autopilot, pilot, but when you hit pockets, your both hands are right there on the controls. You're, yeah. you're monitoring it, you know, you're constantly making sure that the plane's not gonna do anything you don't want it to do and ready to take manual control at any time. Oh, yeah. Um, so Florence, uh, gosh, I keep, I'm sorry, the days all kind of run together for me, to be honest with you. <laughs> oh, um, good. But I think it was our second to last flight. Um, we just had a couple pockets that, that bounces around pretty good. And we had, uh, one crew member who normally flies on the P3s, which fly down lower at 10,000 feet right into the storm. So they get a much more turbulent ride than we will ever see. Um, we had that particular crew member radio over after we got out of the turbulence. He said, I do not want to experience that ever again. Really? <laughs> we kind of laughed and we're like, Man, like, you you fly in the in the P three all the time. That wasn't that bad. And he said it's a it's a way different feeling up at forty five thousand feet. Huh. Interesting. Um, and he's right. Just with the atmosphere being so thin up there, yeah. it does feel a little bit different. That's crazy. You yeah, you would think a P three guy would be like, yeah, it's nothing. You guys are complaining about nothing. You new fancy jet and <laughs> right. all this stuff. <laughs> That's funny. So yeah, so you're uh, flying. And also, the P3s are also hurricane hunters, and like I said, they fly a lot lower. Yeah. Um, usually around ten thousand feet, and they're they're really penetrating the eye wall and getting right into the eye, finding out exactly where the center is. We call it getting the center fix. So they're getting the max wind speed, the lowest pressure. Um, so they're they're part of the hurricane hunter mission, but a different part than what the jet does. Right. So when you guys record, like, uh, so say you record something and you get like this crazy, like the storm's building like crazy. Are you guys all like geeking up out there, like high five and like, oh, it's so cool. It's a category five. Like, this is awesome. I don't know that we go as far as a high five. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there, there's a part of us that's the weather geek part yeah. that we're like, wow, this storm's very beautiful, meteorologically yeah. speaking. But then there's another part of us. They're like, oh, this storm's going to cause some damage. And as I mentioned before, we live in Lakeland, Florida, which took a direct hit from Hurricane Irma last mm-hmm. year. Um, so everyone in that plane has been affected by a hurricane before. So it's always very humbling to bring it back in and just know how people are going to be affected by it. Right. Um, and I think that actually helps us do our mission better in a way that we all respect the storms as much as a weather geeks as we can be. Um, we understand their power and their devastation and we understand the value of our data and getting that data out to the public so that Definitely. they can be better prepared. Definitely. So they can all ignore a mandatory evacuation notice. <laughs> yes. Oh, it is, that is one very frustrating thing when you read the re- the news stories afterwards about 
how people died for whatever reason it might have been. You know, a lot of times they ignore the evacuations. And, and Florence is a great example of this. Six days out, the forecast for landfall ended up being two miles from where it actually hit. That's crazy. Yeah, people still didn't move. It's like, why didn't you trust this forecast? <laughs> why didn't you listen? All right, this isn't um, the 90s anymore. We know and, what we're doing. <laughs> it's it's getting better and better every year. And I like to think we have a part to do with that. Right. Um, but now the bigger question comes, why aren't people listening? I think it's just human nature. You know, they just, they think that they'll be fine. They've never faced anything like it before. They're like, eh, we'll be good. Or even on the vice side, they have faced something like it and they lived through it. Yeah. And they say, oh, it's fine. I've, I've been through this before and it didn't affect me. But the thing that people don't necessarily realize is that every storm is different. Well, I think. That, and everyone is going to affect you in a different way. Right. And what hurt this one was, or what hurt this, I think, was when Florence started downgrading. I think people were like, oh, it's only a category one when it's going to hit. We'll be fine. We did well with Matthew. Yeah. We did well with Arthur. It's like, well, no, this is going to be different. And they just don't yeah, understand Yeah, this that. one's bigger and it's going to stall out over you and you're going to get 30 inches of rain yeah we heard the same things you know with with katrina back in 2005 of oh i lived through camille camille was category five (laughs) camille and katrina were two very very different storms that's very true that's uh that is frustrating to hear about that yeah but I, i do agree with you i think that to do what you do you need to have something that brings brings it like that's real to you. Like the fact that you guys live in Lakeland, Florida, where this is this happens. You guys have firsthand experience of what it's like to feel the wrath of a of a hurricane and a big hurricane, and you know the importance of your work. And it's not necessarily just a job to you guys. It's something that you know is needed. If that makes sense. Yeah, it it absolutely does. And I think um, you know a lot of people have asked, especially lately with the way airlines are hiring them. Well, why don't you move over to the airlines? You could be just flying, focus on flying, not <laughs> worrying about doing any office work because we all have an office job as well, which takes a lot of our time. Yeah. You know, you'd have such a better quality of life. Why, why don't you do that? Well, because that's not what I'm passionate about. Exactly. I'm passionate about the mission. And I think a lot of our pilots here fly for NOAA because they're passionate about what NOAA does. I would 100% agree. If anything, you might be getting airline pilots trying to come over to you guys because they want to do the flying that you do. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So, all right, you're flying through, where, where, where were we at? You're flying through the hurricane and you guys have dropped your tubes. You guys are high-fiving because it's the craziest hurricane you've ever seen in your life and you're at, or you're weather geeking out. What's coming next? Like, um, you guys are en route. Do you guys have a lot of downtime when you're flying or are you constantly doing stuff? We don't have a lot of downtime. Um, our drops come approximately every 10 minutes. Okay. Um, so once you're sending one out and quality checking that, by the time you're getting that data back, you're sending out another one. So we're dropping them about every 10 minutes, but they take 15 minutes to go from our flight level down to the surface. Okay. So the data is constantly coming in. Um, up until our last point, and then we're transiting back back home. Um, at that point, the guys in the back, you know, they're, they've got internet connections. They're looking up the latest forecast to see what's changed in the last eight hours. You know, we've been dropping this data. How has the Hurricane Center been using it? How has the forecast changed? Um, up in the front, we're thinking about pilot things. All right. How do we need to get home? What's the weather like back at home? Right. To be quite honest with you, some of the roughest weather we went through during Florence was coming back into Florida. Oh, geez. Just those general afternoon thunderstorms. I was about to ask. Uh, in Florida this time of year. They they get us every time. I was about to say, how does a uh, a normal land-based thunderstorm, like, 
compete with a hurricane the thunderstorms of that are like you said are the, those pop-ups usually a little bit more turbulent or is it relative to where you are and similar i think it seems like they're more turbulent because of where we are in the storm so when we're coming in for a landing we're going around those thunderstorms at a much lower altitude where they are more fierce yeah uh, so in the hurricane we're up at the tops of them so we're not noticing as much of their vertical motion Right. Um, but when we're coming in for a landing and, you know, we're descending down through 14,000 feet, is you want to avoid those guys at 14,000 feet. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> oh, it's funny when you're descending down and you're like, oh, that, that cloud's so beautiful. Like, look at a building and you're like, look at the development. And then like two seconds later, like, oh, crap, I'm about to go through that. <laughs> and you're, you're like, like no. well, look at that lightning coming out <laughs> yeah. of it. Time to move. Yeah. Uh, can uh, we get panic vectors to the right? <laughs> <laughs> we actually, on our very last hurricane florence flight you know here we are we just went out we spent eight hours around the storm come back into lakeland and it's like oh we we need to go hold because there's a thunderstorm over the airport <laughs> no that's <laughs> funny what um what kind of failures have you guys happened when you're flying over a storm like a mechanical things like what's the plan say you're flying over forty five thousand feet over the worst part of the hurricane and you guys have some issue that you got to do like what's the protocol what's the plan do you guys have picked out airports at every single point that you would have to land at if you can't make it back to the states or that kind of stuff we do so actually one of our Gulfstream four pilots um, brilliant, brilliant pilots. Um, <laughs> he created this divert tool okay. um, that takes all of our performance charts. Um, and essentially you could put a flight plan in there with all our different land longs and it will calculate if you had an engine loss, what your drift down altitude would be and what airports you can make it to and how much food you'd have when you got to those airports. Wow. So we run that tool before every single flight. And uh, when we weren't out in Hawaii, there weren't a lot of options. Right. We got Honolulu or Kilo or Kona, excuse me. Yeah. Um, or LAX. Jeez. <laughs> so, and LAX is but not But we would very run close. it. And there were times where it was like, yeah, your best bet is actually to go to San Francisco right now rather than to return to Hawaii based on where you are around that storm. Wow. Um, so we use that every flight to, to think about some of the catastrophic things. You know, you a power failure or pressurization issue because normal planes that have a pressurization issue, they descend. Right. Well, we can't descend right into the middle of a hurricane. Oh, <laughs> so it's taken into account. All right, get down to 15,000 feet, but diverting around the hurricane and we always have it out. So um, when the hurricane center will give us the points that they want, sometimes we will go back to them and say, okay, we're good with these points, but we need to fly them in reverse because we want to fly around the interconvection of the hurricane in a clockwise direction um, because the storm itself is spinning counterclockwise. So with us going clockwise, it helps keep us from getting trapped in between rain bands that come gotcha. together. Um, so we're, we're constantly keeping things like that in mind, just the safety of it. I mean, it's all our lives on the line too. Right, so um, if we have... And an issue with the aircraft is something breaks, uh, we will always turn away from the storm and uh, and depending on where we are in that storm, go to the safest place. Well, yeah. um, and one of the things that we were considering during Florence, um, our closest Gulfstream maintenance facility is Savannah. But Savannah was in the cone of, of danger right. for Florence. So we thought about that and said, okay, well, we're not going to go to Savannah because... <laughs> 
they might all be evacuating and then our plane's stuck there and we don't want the plane in harm's way on the ground either. So in that situation, you know, we'll return home to Lakeland and let our mechanics gotcha. work the problem. So you guys always plan to land with about 5,000 a few. Is there like a turnaround point where, hey, we got like three, we got one more point left that we have to do. But if we're going to be, if we go do that, then we're not going to be able to return with enough fuel. Or maybe we'll put ourselves in a situation where we can't return to Lakeland and we have to go land in the islands, but that's close to being hit by the hurricane. Like what's that, all that kind of go through? Yeah, we'll we'll always avoid try getting in that situation. So part of that long range planning tool that we have um, it prints out um, your expected fuel remaining at each waypoint. Um, so while we're in flight, the right seat person is actually very busy and they're keeping track of that of, okay, what is our ground speed, our actual ground speed, and what does it say it should have been? And what's our actual fuel remaining versus what we should have had? Um, and if we're running lower on the fuel than what it says we should have had, then we'll make changes in flight and we will... Um, take out some of the waypoints to make sure that we get home uh, with that safety margin. Cause like I said, sometimes you come home and then you end up holding it for a thunderstorm. So right. we want to make sure we have that reserve. Definitely. That's yeah. It's crazy to think of all like being a pilot, you're responsible for everyone's safety. So everyone's like, Oh my gosh, we really need this last point. Like this is so important for whatever, whatever, whatever reason. But you're like, no, I'm sorry. We have to it's make not these decisions. That, yeah. And sometimes what we'll do is if we have to cut off a point, we'll, we'll drop a beam of that point. So we're still getting good data. It might not be exactly where we originally wanted it, mm-hmm. but we're still getting good quality data. Gotcha. So you can still drop it if it's not. I also want to ask, do you have to be within a certain like distance of that point? Like does it have to be like exactly over? Do you have like a mile or two to work with or how does that usually uh, work? 20 miles actually. Oh, wow. It requests 20 miles. Okay. So we have some leeway. Uh, that's 20 miles is, can be a lot in an airplane. So that's good. Yeah. That's awesome. So now you guys are, let's see, you guys are coming back into Lakeland. Like you said, you're holding for a thunderstorm and coming back in. What do you guys do when you land? Is it just close up shop and leave or do you have to debrief and all that kind no, of stuff? No, we, we have a debrief. The debriefs are shorter than, than the pre-briefs. Uh, but we have a debrief just uh, kind of giving the status of, okay, with the instruments that were dropped, were there any that didn't work or were they all good? Um, were there any data connection issues in the back that we need to address before the next flight? And then we'll go through the through what happened up front as well, any issues that we had. Um, you know, if those times when I when I mentioned we had those little pockets of turbulence where the, where the guy in the bag was like, I don't ever want to do that again, we talked about that. We yeah. said, okay, what what about that did you not like? What didn't feel right to you? Um, you know, because we're up front and we have certain safety margins, but we also want the people in the back to be comfortable, not comfortable like, hey, you're riding first class comfortable, but, <laughs> but comfortable and feeling safe. Yeah. No, um, no so, flight attendants so on these flights. No flight attendants. And then uh, we always have uh, our one of our mechanics meet us at the plane, um, and they're they're doing things, checking out any issues. Like if we had any issues, if any minor thing broke, if a light bulb went out, they're right there fixing it, so it's ready for the next flight. Um, you know, they're taking care of of our lab service, getting us more fuel, mm-hmm. um, checking the oil, you name it. What's uh What's like an MEL on that? Do you guys have one of those? Is it kind of like, well, if you can still fly and it's not really going to affect <laughs> that, then go. No, we we are FAA certified airworthiness certificate, so we abide by uh, the MEL uh, for Gulfstream Fours. That's crazy. Yeah, so if the lab breaks, is that gonna shut you down? Then? <laughs> I'd have to look in the books. It might yeah. shut me down. <laughs> Eight hour flight with yeah. no lab. That'd oh, be pretty man. hard. That would be a terrible flight. <laughs> 
<laughs> so what is your most memorable flight or most memorable moment flying over a hurricane or like, I don't know if you're ever scared or whatever. Just give me one of your favorite stories about the job that you do and the type of flying you do. Um, so with hurricanes, this, as I mentioned before, this is my first season flying through hurricanes. So it's all kind of new to me. So I'm still in that, you know, new kid excited phase. Yeah. Um, bring it back into, into my meteorological background and my weather geekiness. I'm not sure that's a word, but I'm going to make it one. That yeah, sounds cool. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we were actually able to see the eye wall on our nose radar, um, which was really cool for us in the G4 because in the past we've always flown um, a 180-mile ring from the center of the storm. So pretty far out there, though still within the outer rain bands. Um, and this year, for the first time ever, we did a 90-mile ring. So that brought us in much, much closer to the center of the storm. Um, and it was during that, you know, there was excitement like, hey, this is the first time we're doing this. This is kind of cool. You know, we're we're pioneers here. And then seeing the the eye wall on the radar, it was like, wow, this is really cool. We're really in this. <laughs> we're really doing this right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. What um so I kind of skipped over this in the beginning, but what kind of so someone wants so say someone's listening to this, they want to be an NOAA pilot and they listen to this, what what was your experience of becoming one? How did it all work out? Where did you do your training? Does your training, did you do all the same training you did now and like check rides and those planes that you're flying in now? Like how did all that go for you? Sure. So the first thing I should say is you can't just become a NOAA pilot. You have to become a NOAA Corps officer first. <laughs> We're officers first, pilots second. Um, so with that brings the possibility that you might go out to sea first, which I did. I went to sea for a year and a half and I absolutely loved it. It was it was great operating an oceanographic research vessel. So number one thing is you got to love science because you're going to be doing it. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, once you're once you become an officer, you can apply for the aviation side of NOAA. Um, the selection process essentially consisted of me getting recommendations from my command uh, and then taking a pilot competency test, the same one that the uh, Navy and the Air Force take. Okay. And based on those two items, they either selected you for an interview or n didn't select you. Um, I was lucky enough to get an interview, during which they said, you know, you have no experience. And I said, That's <laughs> just not true. I have no flight experience, but I know how to run scientific missions because I did it for X number of years on the ship. Right. And I'm really good at that, and I can bring that over into the plane. You're going to teach whoever you pick to fly, so I come to you with no bad habits. Yeah, there um, you go. Apparently, I charmed them enough because they picked me. <laughs> That's awesome. And then they then they sent me to flight school. So for ten months, my job was go to flight school. Um, and I went to Flight Safety International in Vero Beach, um, and there I I literally went from zero hours to having a commercial multi-engine instrument rating um, certificate. Dang, who and paid for that? No, I did. Okay. Um, so that was all paid by our training department. Did you have to sign and your life over to him for like 10 years or anything? Or is it just kind of like, eh, <laughs> please stay? I, I actually didn't have to sign anything um, to, to enact any service uh, requirements as an act of Congress, literally. Um, so I did not have to have to assign it or sign anything, sign my life away. So you um, could have technically left after a year of doing it. Like, hey, this is what I want to do. And you could have got out and go fly <laughs> commercial if you wanted to. I could have, um, but that goes back to, you know, the NOAA pilots where we love the mission. So, <laughs> yeah. um, luckily nobody has done that. Right. Yeah. Um, I think that might change if anyone did that. <laughs> yes. So, so I went to flight school 
And then coming out of flight school, I thought I was going to be going to one of our twin otters because Mm -hmm. that's the normal path. You go to flight school and then you get assigned to the twin otter um, for a five-year assignment. The first two years are spent as a co-pilot, constantly working to learn more and more about the plane and then ultimately becoming an aircraft commander uh, for the final three years of your assignment. Uh, For me, the way the timing worked out, uh, I was ready to go out to the Twin Otter, and I got a call, and they said, we've changed your assignment. You're going to the King Air. You're like, okay. Wow, okay. I didn't (laughs) even know that was a possibility, but it sounds great. I'm in. Uh, So they sent me out to flight safety in Wichita for a specific three-week King Air training, and that was like drinking from a fire hose. I went from a Seminole to a King Air and was like, wow, there's a lot more power in this King Air. Just a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) And throw in the glass cockpit, flight management system, you name it. It was was a big shift for me, but it was a great thing. And uh, like I said, I've been flying the King Air since 2010. Um, During that time, I... I had a full-time flight assignment for four years, uh, two years as co-pilot, two years as aircraft commander, and then I went on to our shore assignments. So NOAA Corps officers alternate between operational assignments and shore assignments, and our shore assignments are always at a NOAA office. So with my background in meteorology and now being an aviator, I went to the Aviation Weather Service in Kansas City, and I was out there for three years. Um, Still flying full-time, but when I wasn't out with the plane, I would go back to Kansas City as opposed to Lakeland. Um, and that was kind of funny because at the Aviation Weather Center, I'm creating the stigmas telling people what not to fly to. Um, <laughs> but then when I go fly, I would completely ignore my own advice. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, something weird about that, huh? <laughs> yeah, something very strange. Yeah. Um, and then the opportunity came up to apply for our heavy aircraft, our heavies being considered the G4 and the P3s. Um, and you can only apply to, well, you can all, you can apply to them both. You can only get accepted to one because there's so much training involved with the heavy aircraft. Um, I thought about what I wanted to do. You know, the meteorology side of me was saying, go for the P3 so you can be right smack in the middle of the hurricane. Uh, and then the pilot side of me said, fly a jet dummy. There's, that's no brainer. Goldstream, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> man. And ultimately I decided, let's go for the jet. I can always ride along on a P3 flight sometime and see right. the inside of a hurricane. That's um, true. So I got selected for the Gulfstream, and then I went to training um, again at flight safety in Savannah this time. Um, another three weeks of fire hose, and um, got my type certificate in the Gulfstream, and then came back and flew um, our own, our internal training syllabus with our internal instructor pilots. I was about to say, there has uh, to be some kind of internal training there, because I'm guessing you get the same type rating as everyone, but it's like... That type rating and the training <laughs> you did has nothing to do with the type of flying you actually do. So what's the training like preparing you for the hurricane and preparing you for the missions you do? You know, a lot of the initial training to become co-pilot qualified isn't necessarily based on the mission, um, but it's it's more intensive than what you get when you're just going for your type ratings. It's, instead of being in a simulator, you're in the actual aircraft, you're doing um, single engine work, you're practicing stalls, steep turns, um, any number of, uh, you know, pretend emergencies. You know, mm-hmm. what happens if this light goes off? What the gear doesn't work? You got to pump it down. Um, so we do all of that. It's a minimum of 10 hours per aircraft for that training, um, more as needed. And with the, with the G4, a lot of it's based on landings because that, that aircraft is very different to land. <laughs> Than any other aircraft I've flown. Um, In what ways would you say it's different? 
well, it's got the swept back wings. Yeah. And then the distance between the main gear and the nose wheel um, is, is pretty far spread apart. So you come in and you touch down the mains nice and easy, and you're like, this is the best landing I've ever had. And then that nose slams down, and you're like, nope, never mind. Dang it. Um, <laughs> so it, it's you want to hold the nose off, but you don't want to hold it off so far or so long that you end up stalling the nose even while the main gears on the ground and have it come slamming down <laughs> I'll say one way or the other so, it's coming down <laughs> it's coming down so it's a it's a matter of managing how fast it's coming down yeah that's fine um, and then when we're learning the mission it's really once we're co-pilot qualified from that point on for the next two years you're flying with aircraft commanders and you were learning the ins and outs of the mission um so every flight it's it's almost like a training flight every flight gotcha um because you're going through and talking about the missions. And even, you know, up in the middle of the hurricane, they'd ask, you know, our aircraft commander say, what happened if this light came on right now? What would you do? Cry. I would cry. <laughs> <laughs> Scream like a little girl. Yeah. And <laughs> <Help me. laughs> oh, so you're constantly thinking through those things. Of, okay, now I'm not just in a traffic pattern and something happened. Right. Now I'm above a hurricane and something happened. Uh, it's like- what? Aim Additional considerations <laughs> do I have? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Sheesh. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's got to be a little bit more stressful when you, you're like, did you guys feel that? Did that sound weird? It's like, well, we're in the middle of a hurricane right now, so. <laughs> what was that hope- noise? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it was just Jimmy. He's not he's not doing so hell, doing so well right now in this fight. <laughs> that's funny. No, that's, I mean, that's an awesome job that you guys do, and I think it's just so interesting. And I know it's probably – the general public kind of pays attention to it more when hurricanes are going on because that's kind of your your kind of your crew and your craft and your trade is being talked about more. But like I know sometimes it can probably be somewhat of a thankless job when it's not hurricane season. But I know people are very appreciative of the work you do. And coming from North Carolina, like you said, and you guys live in Florida, like we know what hurricanes can do and just how powerful they are and how people need to take them serious. So I know I appreciate it. My family appreciates it. And uh, we appreciate everything that you guys do for that. So thank you. Well, thank you for saying that. Thanks for your support. No problem. Um, it was interesting being out in Hawaii earlier this year because, of course, in Hawaii you have so many tourists. And a lot of the tourists come from the Midwest. And they're not thinking about hurricanes. Right. You know, They think, oh, hurricanes is a Florida problem. Um, they go on vacation to Hawaii. And we were out, you know, out walking along the beach after dinner one day. And you start talking to people because... We generally like to talk to people, and they ask, oh, what brings you to Hawaii? <laughs> oh, I'm here studying the hurricane. And they get these big eyes and look at you, and like, there's a hurricane coming. <laughs> <laughs> and you forget. You're like, oh, this isn't on everybody's mind on a yeah. daily basis like it is on ours. That's so funny. Um, it's kind of so like, like uh, okay, go on. Yeah, it's just kind of like, yes, please look at the news. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're on vacation, but... Stay safe. They have a, a commercial going for the Weather Channel with Jim Cantore, and he's going on vacation, and he goes to the beach, and when people finally see him, they start freaking out <laughs> and running away. So I'm guessing you get you get the same look when they're like, "You wait, you fly what? There's a hurricane here. You're doing what now? <laughs> yeah, can uh, should we leave? <laughs> and what's funny is the three times we were out in Hawaii, we uh, we stayed at the hotel each time, so the the workers at the hotel got to recognize us and recognize our suits, and we'd walk in and they're like, "Oh no, <laughs> <laughs> dang it." <laughs> Should I get my flood insurance going now? I was like, I, I would try not to take that personally. Oh, yeah. yeah, right? Seriously. Yeah, one of them was joking around and they said, oh, so when you guys leave, that's when we know we're safe. It's like, either that or we're evacuating. Yeah, yeah. yeah you don't know. That's not a good thing when we leave. <laughs> 
That's really funny. So you mentioned that you also do stuff for the territories too. So like out in the Pacific Ocean where hurricanes and typhoons and when it makes that switch to typhoon and typhoons can be even more powerful than a hurricane. Have you had any experience with a typhoon at all or you mainly just stick with the hurricanes? We haven't actually been sent out and, um, and typhoons and hurricanes are actually the same thing. They're just named different things. Um, but the ones out in, in the Western Pacific, those can get very powerful because they've got a lot of warm water to move over with no land to impede them. Um, so that's why they, I think in general, people think typhoons are stronger than hurricanes and, and really it's the same thing. Um, but they can get some that are stronger for mm-hmm. sure. Uh, we have not been tasked to go out there. Um, but you never know. Things may change. Yeah. I mean, hey, hey, you never know. That's awesome. Well, man, I appreciate you coming on. I have a couple more questions for you and kind of things I do. I have a rapid fire section where I'm just going to ask you a bunch of bunch of questions and you just answer the first thing that comes to your mind. Uh-oh, this could be dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it won't be too bad. I honestly don't know. I, whenever I start this, I'm like, crap, what questions am I going to ask? Oh, we'll see what I come <laughs> up with. All right. What is the ugliest airplane you've ever seen? A Sherpa. A Sherpa. All right. I can't say I know what that is, but it sounds pretty ugly. <laughs> it's. It looks like a big box. Yeah. Yeah. That would be ugly. <laughs> What's your favorite airplane you've ever flown? The G4. G4. That's a good answer. I fly the Latitude, Citation Latitude. I just started flying a couple months ago, and that's by far my favorite plane I've flown too. So nice. I know what you mean. First jet, so it's definitely fun. All right, you're flying through the airport, whether it's vacation or whether it's a trip, you're going to the plane, and you really need some food. What is your go-to airport food? Oh, man. That's, I can't be rapid fire on this one. I go to the lounges. Really oh, do. no. That's awesome. Free food is the best food. Free, you're, you're a pilot at heart. Yeah, free food. Yeah. Oh, you should have flown freight then. Free food. I was a freight dog, and that's all we did was eat free food. That's funny. All right, so what is your favorite airline to fly on? Southwest, because I can change my ticket. <laughs> oh, yeah, I could see that. That's good. Our schedules are very flexible. Yeah, <laughs> I bet. What is your favorite airline livery? Oh, oh, you know, I'm a California girl, so I got to go back to Southwest Jets that's painted with California flag. There you go. What is your favorite type of flying to do? Would you rather fly? Now, I usually ask this this way, but I'll throw in this for you. Would you rather fly over the mountains, the beach, the flyover, country, flyover states, or would you rather fly over hurricanes? mountains yeah mountains are cool mountains mountains offer such a a beautiful landscape to fly over and even to come in and land at they are terrifying at some points because you're like oh it's getting (laughs) kind of close but they are beautiful well having flown a coastal mapping mission for so long you don't get the opportunity to fly over mountains and we were transitioning from the east coast to the west coast and we landed in missoula montana and that was the most gorgeous approach i've ever done it was if you haven't gone up there, you should. Yeah. I've, I've flown in a couple of small places in Montana. We flew into this place called Anaconda, Montana, and it was gorgeous. It was, like you said, it was just unbelievable. So pretty. Never knew there was a place called Anaconda, Montana either, but now we know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What is, let's see, I had it and I lost it. Let me look. What is your favorite airport you've ever landed in? JFK. Really? Oh. Uh, because it's just such a rare thing. We were up there uh, doing damage assessment after Hurricane Sandy. And we landed there the first day it was reopened. And it was just so funny being in there in the little King Air 
uh, out among some really big jets. Yeah, really big planes. I did that in a PC-12, and they're like, how fast can you go? And they're like, we need you to go faster than your fastest. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. What's your least favorite airport to fly into? Oh, good question. Lakeland, maybe? It's home, <laughs> and there's always a thunderstorm here. That is the true. airport itself is great, but later in the afternoon is not so great. That's awesome. All right, here is the last one. What is one thing you always have to have with you when you're flying? It could be like an iPad with four flight on it. It could be a watch, sunglasses, a sick bag since you fly through turbulence all the time, whatever. <laughs> Diet Dr. Pepper. Diet Dr. Pepper. There you go. That's awesome. Don't leave home without it. Don't. <laughs> you got to bring a couple of those bad boys for an eight-hour flight, huh? Oh, yes. Yeah. You guys need like Yeti coolers in there. We do have a cooler in the back yeah. with ice. That's awesome. That's really cool. Well, hey, I appreciate you coming. Oh, wait. One more thing. There is someone that comes up to you says, man, I just really want to be a pilot. And they just have some questions for you. What is... Maybe three things you would tell someone right now that wants to start training about why they should start training to become a pilot. Uh, best view of any office, hands down. Um, so they want to do it. They should absolutely keep that in mind and do it and do it early. Um, like I said, I charmed my way in having no flight hours, <laughs> but I think had I had flight hours, it would have been a much easier interview. So take whatever lessons you can. I know it's expensive. And that's a bummer. Uh, but that leads me to my third thing of look for opportunities, opportunities like flying for the military where you can get your training paid for. Um, and that's a great way to build hours and get experience as well. Definitely. And then I actually lied. Last thing. Uh, so <laughs> they also say they're very interested in the NOAA. And obviously not everyone is familiar with them. So go ahead and talk about maybe how someone signs up for it, what someone should do to maybe if they want to be a pilot, should they get their pilot license first or what's the route that they should go? Yeah, um, they should definitely focus on school first because that's one of our eligibility requirements. You have to have a bachelor's degree. Um, and if you have a bachelor's degree in science, that's even better. We do have a minimum number of science credit hours that you have to have. Um, so first things first, check us out. It's NOAA, N-O-A-A, core, C-O-R-P-S, at NOAA.gov. Um, that's our website. It'll give you information about how to apply. So I won't bore you with that over the radio right now. <laughs> yeah. um, it also has some recruiting videos so you can kind of see the different things we did. As I mentioned before, we're not just aviation. We're a large part maritime, and I don't want that to scare anybody away because I had a fantastic time at sea. I think anybody would go out, love the mission, um, love the freedom that you have um, to just kind of disconnect from the rest of the world and focus on science and doing something operational. Um, if they really, really want to be a pilot, um, I'd say the only way to be a pilot in NOAA is to be open to everything that NOAA has to offer first off. Because right. if you just come to us and you say it's pilot or nothing, well, it's going to be nothing. Because <laughs> we want someone that, that cares about the full mission, not just the flying part. Definitely. Um, it certainly helps to have any pilot experience that you already have. Um, so that being said, you know, if you're if somebody's already graduated and ready to apply, don't don't hold off on applying to get a pilot's license, but try to do it at the same time. Put in your application, but also start taking lessons, even if it's just getting through ground school. Any little bit will make that person, that candidate, more and more, I guess, valuable right. as an aviation candidate. Awesome. Thank you. I appreciate you saying that. And like I said earlier, thanks for everything you do. Um, 
That's just, just incredible. I mean, it's every weather geeks, every av geeks, probably one of their dreams would be to go on a hurricane hunter at some point in their life. So you get to do it all the time. So <laughs> if you ever fly and you're like, man, my job sucks. Just remember that there's tons of people down here. They're like, oh, that'd be so cool to do it at least once. <laughs> we'll do. We'll do. Uh, I don't think I'm ever going to get to that point, but good. if I do, I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, hey, I appreciate you coming on the podcast and um, yeah, I wish you the best and who knows, maybe next year when there's a big hurricane, we'll talk again. Sounds good, Justin. Thanks again for having me. No problem. Have a good one. You too. Bye. And that is a wrap of episode 42. Aviation, thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Please leave us a review on iTunes. Like I said, check out our website, pilotthepilothq.com. And please check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash pilotthepilot. See you guys next week with another episode. We're going to be talking with Jan Sears who is a California Highway Patrol pilot, and it's another great fire episode. Aviation, happy flying.